Ok. 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 Let me just make sure. Okay, you can introduce it this time because I've introduced too many so See, far. See, I don't believe in introductions because that's why you started doing it because I just start talking and you were not happy with that. That's why you started doing the introductions. So if you want me to do the introductions, I'm just going to start talking. You used to say... Yeah, used to ha- yeah and then I gave up on that because it was stupid. <laughs> okay, let's just go then. Yeah, let's just go. Right, so what's new with you, Darren? Hello and welcome to episode... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's episode you forty-five, bastard. the Jurassic World special. Hey, oh no, wait, that was last time. Yeah, and so much has happened since then. Right, so we're gonna. Uh, it's been a while since the last one. Should we start by talking about Tetsuzukon? Okay. Yeah. Okay. So there's an event called Tetsuzukon, the Tetrodzorgi Convention. We had one last year, 2014. It was an outstanding success. It was loved by everyone who went, <laughs> and the people that didn't go, they were upset they they didn't go so we finally uh have a confirmed venue and date tetsukon 2015 is going to be held at the london wetland center specifically in the what's the room called the water's edge room water's edge room yes uh this is on saturday the 14th of november um we have a uh list of um uh, talks by people from across the Tetsu universe, all kinds of stuff. We're going to have a paleo art workshop of some kind. We're probably going to have a hilarious quiz, and there'll be much fun, and it'll be awesome. And um, now, we've actually got so much stuff that we could run over uh, Tetsuyukon. We're talking, you know, we could pretend, we've got enough for like two days. Any one of these, these could, this could easily be a two-day event, but uh, the financial concerns require that we can't run a two-day event. Unless these things become bigger and better, and if we basically get more more people coming and more money coming in, so um, you know, to those who went last time, we hope to see you again. And if you enjoyed it last time, please do tell your friends and whoever you think might be interested, and get them to come as well. And if you haven't been before, then daddy, come along, slacker. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, slacker. Living in a different on a different continent is no excuse. Yeah, yeah. what's a few thousand air miles and carbon? Yeah costs and stuff yeah between us and the planet um yeah okay so so yeah so tetsuukon uh saturday the 14th of november and we'll be talking about it more yeah uh, in future episodes yes yes and the web page to watch is tetsu.com slash convention and you may or may not be able to book tickets there when this episode goes live. <laughs> right. So, so uh, well, yeah, we'll get that up and running ASAP. Right. Now, now oh, uh, two-minute rule is in effect. The Tetsu drinking game right. is in effect. Uh, nice drinking. Uh, um, we're going to start with... We're not going to do follow-up because I can't think of anything. I'm sure there's loads of stuff we got wrong last time, but... yeah. We're going to launch into the part of the show that John likes to call uh, News from the World of Darren and John. Yeah, that's what I like to call it. Do you know what I did recently? I recently finished writing a book. Did you? 
I did as a dinosaur-themed book, which will be available for sale next year. And I can't say more about it, apart from the fact that it will be available in a major natural history-themed museum. <laughs> 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 and and in other retailers uh, as well, and uh, yeah, very very pleased to have gotten that finished. The paper on Bowler Bondock, which I uh, co-authored with Andrew Cow and Tom Brewham, uh, was published in Peer J a couple of weeks ago, and I don't need to talk about that at length because obviously covered it on Tet Zoo. So this idea that a dromaeosaurid-like flightless Paravian Manoraptoran, the idea that it's that it is not a dromaeosaurid but it is actually a secondary flightless bird. <laughs> Or a member of the bird lineage in Avialan. That's now that's now out there and published. And um, well, I've spoken about it before, haven't I? And like mm-hmm. I say, it's all on Tetsu, so don't want to go off on a tangent. Start discussing that because there's eh, lots of interesting ramifications. Um, now, back in um, March 2015, I was one of about 60 authors <laughs> who contributed to a paper led by Anders Rodin published in the Bulletin of the Zoologi- Bulletin of Zoological Nomenclature, where we published a paper saying that the ICZN, the International Commission on Zoological Nomenclature, needs to strike from the record and ignore the contributions of one Raymond Hoser. And if you don't know who Raymond Hoser is, Google Raymond Hoser. Maybe put the word snakes or reptiles in there if you want, and you'll probably find the Tetsu article by me, which is all about Mr. Hoser and his... Uh, unbelievable efforts to basically undermine the world of reptile taxonomy and nomenclature. And um, we published a paper, the infamous case 3601, where uh, we're basically saying that um, uh, Hoser's like, in-house desktop published publication can't be regarded as like a um, uh, an acceptable venue for the publication of new taxonomic names. And if you're unfamiliar with this story, and if it just sounds like we're being... Nazi-ish and trying to beat on the little guy, no, you need to actually read what Hoser does because it's unbelievable. Uh, the reason this is news now, because obviously I said that that Rodin Natal paper came out in March earlier this year, the reason it's, it's newsworthy now is because, guess what, Hoser has just published like seven responses <laughs> and uh, some indication of his quality as a researcher and individual uh, come from the title of um, this paper. Uh, published in his Australian Journal of Herpetology, uh, it, which, by the way, is completely authored by him and nobody else. Uh, Road Dinner Tower 2015, yet more lies represent... Rep- Road Dinner Tower 2015, yet more lies, misrepresentations and falsehoods by a band of thieves intent on stealing credit for the scientific works of others. <laughs> That's the title of his paper. <laughs> In, uh, let me just read a bit of the abstract because this is, this is quality stuff. In March 2015, a submission with an alleged authorship of 70 individuals, okay, 70 individuals, cited here as Road in Hell 2015 was published. An alleged authorship. <laughs> alleged authorship. Who was alleged published- that? <laughs> was published in the Bulletin of Zoological Nomenclature. Although the corresponding author, author was in fact Mr. Scott Thompson, the list of alleged authors include a group of people also known as the Worcester Gang. <laughs> they claim to represent, quotes, the global herpetological community, end quotes. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, so it's all very uh, amusing. And um, I, should, I should write about the, the Hoser story again because it's uh, great stuff. Um... Also in news from the world of Darren, um, big shout out to Dan Garrick at Marwell Wildlife, who very kindly hosted myself and Dave Hone uh, 
uh, Dave Hone works on dinosaurs, some of you know him. And um, yeah, we got to see awesome behind the scenes stuff that I'm not allowed to talk about. <laughs> There was some, always there was some, good for podcasting. Yeah, some crazy insects and uh, some neat reptiles that are going to be on display. Um, yeah, so I've started work on my next book. I mean, obviously, I have the textbook going on in the background. <laughs> yeah, when you said well. you'd finished a book, I thought maybe you were talking about that. <laughs> I thought it was some sort of miracle. <laughs> uh, support me at Patreon if you want to see how it's going with the uh, the big textbook. Yeah. Uh, support John at Patreon if you want as well. But yeah, um, you won't see anything about that textbook. <laughs> <laughs> so I started work on my next book, which is a cryptozoology themed book, which means that I am just today rereading the Cryptozoologicon uh, volume one. Volume, just volume had to two out very shortly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, the Cryptozoological is much better than I remembered it being. It's really good. So, <laughs> <laughs> Such modesty. It is. It's awesome. Just wow. Um, so, people, if you haven't bought, if you're interested in cryptozoology, mystery animals and such, then uh, check it out. Buy it at our irregular books shop online. Um, look, another new book. Yep. Flying Dinosaurs. Flying Dinosaurs by John Pickerel. How Fearsome Reptiles Became Birds. Yeah, not so happy with that title. But um, yeah, that's a Peter Shooton f- uh, painting on the cover. Yeah. Or certainly the Guanlong is. I think that eagle's a photo. Yeah, the eagle's a photo. But I thought this was going to be similar to the Peter Shooton and um, John Long um, Dino Birds book. But it's not. It's more of a kind of like text-heavy thing with a section of plates in the middle, which is a, I have to say, a um, a design that I'm not particularly keen on. But no, um, ah, it looks quite interesting. I've got to read it for the purposes of review. So, Flying Dinosaurs by John Pickerel. Uh, Any sure other books a- you haven't read yet? Well, there's a big stack of them. Did I? Sh- uh, okay. God, sit down. We have to do cash for questions. Yeah, look at this. Have you, uh, let me just mention this though. Biology and Evolution of Crocodilians by Gordon Grigg and David Kirshner. This is one of the most incredible books ever in the history of books. It's just, it's unbelievable. The stuff, the amount of images that they have in here. and the, So, stuff like, okay, that's not, you've seen that before. That's, I was just showing John some pictures of uh, body language in crocs. This is cool. All right, see these pictures here, right? You see the little insets in the photos? Yeah. Is like that one there. Yeah. What that shows is a biting fly attached to the nose, the nostril mound of this lunging crocodile. Mm-hmm. And the point of the photograph is that the, the, the photographer, uh, the photographers found that when crocodiles or other crocodilians, when they leap out of the water or whatever, the biting flies stay on them. So, <laughs> so in that photograph, there's actually a fly clinging on to mm. the, the nostril there. And... Uh, Oh, there's there's just so much stuff in it. This book costs about it's a hundred and fifty Australian dollars, so that's about a hundred English pounds. Mm. I guess that's probably like about a hundred and fifty US dollars as well. But um, oh my god, it is just so good. It's the it's the crocodile book to end all crocodile books or crocodilian. I should say <laughs> six hundred forty nine pages. Let's do the Darren painted. How heavy is this book test? Yeah. 
you know, it, <laughs> it's not a very good test because it always just sounds like a slap. <laughs> I wouldn't have bothered painting that if I um, were you. Yeah. You've made me go off at a tangent here because... I've made you go off on a tangent. You've been, <laughs> the next... <laughs> you've been blathering on about books now. You, you said you weren't going to do this. The next part of the show is yeah. called News from the World of News. Keep it right, brief. Right, right. Four bits of news. Mm. Uh, two minute rule. Keep an eye on the clock. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> okay. Here we go. Uh, number one. Jay, Sean, Doody, and colleagues published their paper in Zoological Journal of the Nain Society on deep burrowing nesting behavior in yellow spotted monitors. Baroness Panoptes uh, in the, the Kimberley region of Western Australia. This has been covered on Tetsu at length. I found this really cool story. The fact that um, females, female yellow-spotted monitors, <clears throat> dig these deep spiralling corkscrew burrows, very similar to burrows called diamond elix, these like famous yeah, Cenozoic fossils from North America, these cork devil's corkscrew burrows made by an ancient plains-dwelling beaver called Paleocastor. Um, Modern monitor lizards are digging these deep burrows. D- did you read the article, Tetsu? No. Okay, well, how deep do you reckon the burrows are? What do you reckon the deepest burrow? Deepest burrow of a monitor deepest lizard. Burrow. This is for an animal that's about 50 centimetres, 60 centimetres. No, 70 centimetres long. Three metres. More. <laughs> okay, 3.6. The deepest <laughs> one was 3.6. The nesting chamber, 3.6 metres below ground. A spiralling burrow containing it, consisting of as many as eight convolutions. That's really cool. Uh, yes. Read about it on Tetsu and the paper itself, Dudi et al., Zoo Journal, Linsock. Go to Tetrapods already if you want the reference. The paper is open access. You get it free. There you go, two minutes. Bish, bash, bosh. Second one, Alexander Immel and colleagues... This was just published last month, June, published in Nature Scientific Reports. Um, they show that specimens of the giant palmate antlered deer, Megaloceros, often called the so-called Irish elk, this animal was still alive in Central Europe, in Baden-Württemberg, specifically in Germany, about te- um, 12,000 years ago. So that's, at the, that's after the end of the last glacial maximum, which is about uh, 12,500 years ago just before the start of the Holocene, which is somewhere between eleven and 10,000 years ago. Now, in recent years, it's been discovered that Megaloceros did not die out at the end of the Pleistocene, the end of Pleistocene mass extinction, but that a couple of populations persisted into the early Holocene. They were discovered, first of all, to have survived on the Isle of Man to uh, until about 9,000 years ago. There's a dwarf population on the Isle of Man. And then it was discovered that... What's um, the point of them, though? Well, they're dwarfed relative to continental Megaloceros. It doesn't mean they're like rodeo-sized Megaloceros. They're just... (laughs) What's the point of them? (laughs) Then it was discovered... You just call them Cerus. (laughs) Megaloceros. Then it was discovered that a population in the Urals, Western Siberia, they survived until 7,700 years ago, maybe to a little bit recently. Some people have suggested maybe to as recently as 5,000 years ago. So again, that's well into the the Holocene. This population in Germany is about 12,000 years ago, so it's older than these Isle of Man and Western Siberian ones. But the key point is that it's in the the middle of Europe. Um, So uh, presumably after the glacial maximum, after the ice sheet has retreated across the European continent, uh, individuals were able, a population was able to return to Central Europe 
whether they came from the uh, from the east in the, the Euro region, we, we don't know. So this is part of a bigger picture of Pleistocene extinctions. We've covered Pleistocene extinctions before, haven't we? And we kind of spoke about the fact that it seems to be as is, I think, as is becoming the case with basically all the mass extinctions, they're sort of messy. It's not one cause. It's a couple of things going on. Some animals are hit really badly. Others are fine. Others are, you know, moderately affected. And Megaloceros is actually not a member of this guild of species that's just, you know, eliminated entirely. Many populations persist well into the Holocene and then go extinct for other reasons. Another interesting thing about this study they obviously have DNA from these bones, and this is another study reporting a close link between Megaloceros and fallow deer, Dharma deer, which is nice because there's a there's a there's a debate in uh, among deer specialists as to whether Megaloceros is closer to the Dharma lineage or closer to the Cervus lineage and competing ideas. Um, and they got a nice tidy phylogeny with uh, distinct old and new world deer clades, which is good uh, if if you like deer. That was two minutes. Okay, okay number th- okay, number three. Uh, Lauren Gonzalez at our Nature Communications uh, new paper published on the uh, brain of Victoria Pathicus. This is a monkey, fossil monkey from the Miocene, about fifteen million years old, from Maboko Island in Kenya, um, off the coast of Kenya, I think. And um, um, Victoria Pathicus is an early member of the old world monkey lineage, the Cercopithesoids or Cercopithecids. This lineage is the sister lineage to hominoids, right? So old world monkeys and the human and the ape human lineage are sister taxa. And this early, we know of early hominoids that have got relatively big brains. This early monkey has a relatively small brain. So one of the things it indicates is that a relatively large brain is not ancestral for the common ancestor, is not present in the common ancestor of old world monkeys and hominoids, right? So they both start out with relatively small brains. They independently evolve large brains. That in itself is interesting. But the more interesting thing is to do with brain complexity. Um, Victoria Pithecus has a, a relatively small brain compared to other old world monkeys, but the brain itself has got many of the features that make the monkey brain, make the higher, the anthropoid primate. Oh, nearly said higher primate there. Mm, (laughs) Well, well, primatologists do that all the time, but I don't want to. Um, Basically, brain complexity is present. There's evidence for brain complexity, even though brain size is relatively small. Brain size and cerebral organization evolved independently in anthropoid primates. Now, this study is only about monkey brains. Mm. <laughs> and I can't help but think of an Indiana Jones scene when I say that. But um, whether it has any implications for anything else is uncertain, uninvestigated. But mm, makes you wonder. These monkeys, okay, they're anthropoid primates. They've got huge brains compared to the majority of animals. But they've got, a, Victoria Pithecus has got a smaller brain compared to most other anthropoids, and yet it's already got like interesting features of brain complexity that are associated, that were thought to be unique to much larger brains present in other, in modern old world monkeys and modern hominoids. So that's cool. Um, yeah, so Gonzalez at our Nature Communications. Finally, the fourth paper is by Leonardo Maiorino. I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly. Apologies to Leonardo. Published in PLOS One back in May. 
As you know, there is a long-running and interesting debate going on in the world of dinosaur behavior and biology, as goes sexual dimorphism, sexual selection, all that kind of stuff. And um, there's, there's an idea out there which has been promoted by a few dinosaur experts that horned dinosaurs have distinct male and female morphs. And you can possibly distinguish them on the basis of like frill inclination and brow horn length and snout depth and such. And Peter Dodson famously published a paper in, I think it's like 1974, where he showed that in protoceratops, you've got distinct males and distinct females. And that's become like textbook lore ever since. Mm. Um, I don't think it's right, because if you look at his original, I, I don't think it's necessarily that well, I mean, that well supported. Because if you look at his original graphs, there's animals that are like slap bang in the middle between the male and female clusters. Yeah. And it's, and it's like, well, that kind of ruins the idea there's these distinct non-overlapping clusters because they clearly are intermediates. We just need better sampling. And this new study does basically show exactly that. If you have enough data points, these there are not distinct clusters. These animals merge into one another. And you've got extremes at either end, but there's enough of a spectrum in between for it to be impossible for you to distinguish them. So hmm. according to this study... Protoceratops, the variation you see is like intrapopulational variation, just extremes at either end, but most of the animals are in the middle. You can't say whether they're males or females, which is consistent with the idea that in horned dinosaurs in general, protoceratops specifically, you don't have distinct sexual dimorphism. Maybe you do in something we haven't yet been able to, you know, document or study properly, like body size or color or something, but in terms of the cranial shape shape of the snout shape of the frill you can't really distinguish them yeah. so males and females are pretty much the same in terms of ornamentation which fits with the the stuff that myself dave hone in cut hill published on mutual sexual selection the idea that males and females are both uh, both possessing the same extravagant cranial features and i was kind of surprised that that stuff wasn't cited in this paper i don't think it did i have to say i bit disappointed i think this paper did a fair job of citing the stuff that's been published on the sexual selection debate in mesozoic dinosaurs because mm. uh, as we know that is a thing that's going on and on and on <laughs> <laughs> it is kind of surprising though that there's not uh, more cases of clear sexual dimorphism i think that is kind of interesting that we're not really finding a lot of really clear and obvious cases where that's what's going on yeah, now part of that is probably just crappy fossil record, isn't it? Indeed, yeah. Most dinosaurs, you've only got one specimen, or yeah. one one good one and a broken one. Yeah. <laughs> but then, but then, in all the groups where we do have lots of fossils, like hadrosaurs and ceratopsians, um, now from the bony evidence that we have, it does look like males and females are similarly ornamented, mm. and that's interesting. I think that is interesting, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Although the centromorphism is a bit like one of those things you notice it when it's there, so you might not notice the whole that it, overall it's quite rare. Well, but I don't know. Is it? I don't think it really is. Is it? Sexual dimorphism is not rare. No. Well, although uh, the sort of sexual dimorphism that we naturally think of being mammals is more enhanced is more obvious than the sorts of sexual dimorphism that are present in reptiles including birds yeah. because in many birds and other reptiles sexual dimorphism is present but it's more of a spectrumy thing as in like 
um, males and females both have the same thing, but males have just got a like a more enhanced or more strongly developed version of the thing that's present in females, and vice vi- vice versa in the specimens where the f- the species where the females are the the more ornamented ones, like cassowaries and lily trotters. So, but the inter- the I guess what what we can glean from that is that. Um, uh, protoceratops, for example, could still be sexually dimorphic. We just yeah. don't know which end is which and which ones would be which sex. Yes. Necessarily. It would be a, yeah. more of a statistical likelihood. I think that's why you have to put the caveats in there. Like, based on the data that we can analyse or we can observe, we can't we can't detect sexual dimorphism in like snout shape or frill shape. Plus also, I was careful to say bony characters because of course yeah. they could be completely sexually dimorphic as goes coloration or soft tissue yeah um so okay there we go right so cash for questions yes yes we've got a lot of cash for questions because we didn't we didn't do any last time and um slackers yeah slackers and lots have been coming in okay so too many <laughs> <laughs> Too many. <laughs> All right, so this is from Nicholas Herald, and it's about Tyrannosauroids. I'm curious as to your opinion on Nanotyrannus lanciensis, genuine taxon or juvenile T-Rex? Yeah, Nanotyrannus lanciensis, yeah. Um, um, well, I'm... So, for those who don't know, Nanotyrannus is based only on a, a single skull described, I think, initially in 1946 and interpreted as a species of Gorgosaurus or Albertosaurus, one of those kinds of Tyrannosaurids, mm-hmm. and then redescribed in 1988 by Robert Backer and colleagues and said to be a new kind of dwarf Tyrannosaurid. And they said that although it's very similar to Tyrannosaurus in terms of like the orientation of its uh, orbit, its, its, its eye sockets and stuff, and how narrow its snout is, they said that these features most likely have evolved convergently, and it's not a Tyrannosaurus like Tyrannosaurus. It belongs to a different part of the tree, and it's like an, a neighbour of Tyrannosaurus, but it's like a small, uh, more primitive, in quotes, um, dwarf Tyrannosaurid. And uh, interesting idea, got a bit of traction for a while. But then you have this study published by Tyrannosaurid expert Tom Carr in, what do you reckon? I think 1999 sounds about right. Yeah, Carr showed that in fact the so-called nanotyrannus skull almost certainly is a juvenile Tyrannosaurus rex. And he basically showed that all the features used by Backer and colleagues were erroneous or incorrect or they'd, they'd missed stuff. This specimen has like unfused sutures in the skull. The sutures, the sutures that it has which are fused are fused in the juveniles of all Tyrannosaurids, so they don't really mean anything. And it still has got this kind of distinctive uh, grainy-like uh, outer texture on the skull bones. And uh, it seems to be like a... Yeah, a of course, people like... Uh, where's the question gone? You haven't moved it, have you? Yeah, I sorted it. Oh, it's great. It's 45. Uh, Answered, look for the question. It's <clears throat> Patreon. 45? No, that's the... What the hell is Episode going on? 45. L- row 71. <laughs> Nicholas. <laughs> I was trying to, trying to no. So, someone like Nicholas uh, already knows this, but... But that's that's the background to the debate, I, I, and I'm pretty convinced by that stuff. 
I think that Nano Tyrannus, first of all, I think it's a juvenile. Secondly, I think it's a juvenile Tyrannosaurine Tyrannosaurid, very closely related to Tyrannosaurus rex and most probably belonging to it. And uh, and also, I think that in keeping with what Carr and others have said, it shows that juvenile Tyrannosaurines and Tyrannosaurids and maybe, you know, this group of animals in general, juveniles are far more gracile, slender snouted, um, shallower snouted, uh, uh, lanceolate toothed animals, very different from big, robust toothed things like uh, the adult of Tyrannosaurus rex, which, which is a whole big interesting story because it means that juveniles are living quite a different kind of life from uh, adults. Uh, in mm. terms of like you know what they're predating on and stuff, so so yeah, that, that's that, I, I'm 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 of the car school pretty much. I do think Nano Tyrannus is a most likely a juvenile Tyrannosaurus Rex. Do you have a take on this? Um, well, I have actually read that paper a long time ago, mm-hmm. and I don't pretend to understand development well enough to make sense of those arguments particularly well, but. I do think a lot of these things are quite suspicious. I do agree that it looks like it's a juvenile. And shouldn't we have found something else by now? You know, and shouldn't there be something that is just... I don't know. I think when you're saying something's a new taxon rather than a juvenile of another taxon, you've got to have a fairly clear rationale for why that is. And I don't I don't see see that happening with Nanoturanus. You read mean, some arguments on online, but it'd have to be fairly knocked down. I, I don't know. Sorry, what? No you expert mean, on this. You mean you? Sh- you mean you should expect there to be more nano tyrannus like animals? Yeah. Right. Okay. Because because yeah. there are a couple, aren't they? There's this thing called Jane, which is supposed to be nano tyrannus like, and there's this specimen that's part of so-called dueling dinosaurs, where there's a nano tyrannus type tyrannosaurid together with the Chasmosaurian Ceratopsian. And people like um, Pete Larson and Bob Backer, they're saying that these animals, the, oh, this shows that Nanotranus is like a distinct animal. And bear in mind, for the one at the dueling dinosaur specimen, that's not just a skull, that's a whole animal. Mm. There was a TV documentary about this, uh, Nat Geo. And that reminds me, I wanted to talk about the T-Rex autopsy TV show, but whatever, not now. Um, uh, th- this TV this documentary was like one of the worst things I've ever watched. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't stand it. I stopped watching it. Um, um, and that, cause they're saying, Hey, look, the arm of this air quotes, nanotranus. Okay. Whenever we say nanotranus, we don't, we're not saying it's a distinct species. It's a label for these things. Uh, Larson is saying, look, the arm of this thing is like either the same size as or bigger than the arm of an adult Tyrannosaurus rex. They're saying, da that's like proves that it's a thing, that it's a distinct taxon. It's like, yeah, but there's like, you know, 20 different unknowns there. Uh, first of all, even an adult Tyrannosaurus, adult Tyrannosaurus rexes aren't all going to be the same size. They're going to span a huge range of variation in body sizes and ages and population. They, they do, as we know, right? As they do, uh, this uh, Tyrannosaurus rex, I believe, has has a, a range extending from like certainly way deep in the south of the United States, all the way up to like Saskatchewan in Canada. So this is an and it's around for it's not I'm not it's not around for an exceptional period of time for a dinosaur species, but it's still around for like more than a million years. 
So to use one specimen and to say, then you know, proof of something. And also, so what if the arm is the same size as the juvenile? Well, we've spoken about the arms of Tyrannosaurids before. They're weird. So the concept of allometry is a familiar one when you're talking about the changes that animals undergo during growth. Allometry refers to the fact that different parts of the body do not change at the same rate across the whole organism. Yeah. In us, our heads become proportionally smaller, our legs become proportionally longer as we grow. But what about there are parts of the body that exhibit um, isometry. They stay the same size in proportion to the rest of the body. And there are even things that exhibit strong negative allometry. That is, they become proportionally smaller compared to the, you know, proportionally, obviously, compared to the whole size of the animal. So, yeah, I, th- I think what about, what about the idea that if you find that your air quotes nanotyrannus, if that's got an arm the same size as your adult Tyrannosaurus rex, well, maybe that shows the arm doesn't grow. Uh, I, I, just, I just, well, obviously, it's a, it's a dodgy argument. That's the point, isn't it? I mean, yeah. Although it, it, it opens up a new poss- an interesting new possibility for what, what is going on with Tyrannosaur arms, in that they were useful in juveniles, but not useful in adults, and therefore they just arrested their growth at some point and stopped using them. Yeah. So you hands- wouldn't resorb them because you can't. Right? Oh, that's very tricky. (laughs) (laughs) So instead, they just arrest the growth entirely at at some sort of age, somewhat bigger than a nanotyrannus size thing, and that's that. Yes. Here we come to our, again, our crippling lack of uh, genetic developmental data on (laughs) on, on Tyrannosaurus. uh... Although, in theory, enough fossils uh, might answer this. Yeah. That's a pretty fascinating idea. I mean, bear in mind. This could be framed as one of those phylogeny recapitulates. No, sorry, ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny things, couldn't it? Because we already know, or we already think, from the Tyrannosauroid. By the way, to those who don't know, Tyrannos- we are not using Tyrannosauroid and Tyrannosaurid interchangeably. These refer to different groups of organisms. Tyrannosaurids are a subgroup of Tyrannosauroids. Tyrannosauroids is the group that includes all Tyrannosauri type things. Tyrannosaurids is just a short armed Tyrannosauroid clade. Um, um, we, we, we already think that tyrannosauroids start out with reasonably length forelimbs and evolve shorter ones over time. So the primitive condition for a tyrannosaurid is to start, you should expect tyrannosaurids to start out with, with compared to adult tyrannosaurids, to start out with relatively large forelimbs. Mm. And then to, so maybe, maybe this is happening in the ontogeny of a species. Tyrannosaurus rex starts out with a, yeah, relatively longer arms. Yeah, yeah. Um, we do have several um, juvenile Tarbosaurus, right? Uh, mm. They were given all. They were given different names for a long time. Melivosaurus was it, and a few other things. I don't really, un- I don't really know those specimens very well, but it'd be interesting to see what the what's going on with their arms. Anyway. Yeah, yeah. And so, there was a, yeah. Sorry, go on. No, no, go ahead. I, I was just going to say there was a juvenile Tarbosaurus skull described um, a couple of years ago by Whitmer and colleagues, and uh, they made the point of saying that we're acutely aware of the fact that this juvenile Tarbosaurus does not look as different from the adults of Tarbosaurus as Nanotyrannus does from the adults of Tyrannosaurus. I'm pretty sure that's what they said. I, was, I only read the paper when it came out. But... Um, uh, so there, so you could take that as possible red flag. Well, 
But on the other hand, you know, different species have very different ontogenetic trajectories. What mm. goes for one species may not necessarily go for the other. Um, and especially as if we think that um, in the case of these of Tyrannosaurids, that juveniles are specialised differently to adults. They're actually doing something different. So it might be that juvenile Tarbosaurs are doing something different to juvenile um, Tyrannosaurus, even though the adults end up in a similar place, which is why they look so similar. Yeah, yeah. these animals are living in very different communities, and therefore they're, um, you know, presumably they're, you know, quite plausibly their the specialization their their evolution might be might be quite different tyrannosaurus is a very unusual animal coming from this weird depauperate lake maastrichtian dinosaur fauna which is kind of like a really sort of bland boring fauna although i keep on saying that I, that's whenever i talk about dinosaur extinction and dinosaur decline in the maastrichtian so that's the last part of the lake cretaceous it's interesting that sometime prior to the very end of the lake cretaceous You've got this diversity of incredible like hadrosaurs and horned dinosaurs and a, cu- a couple of um, tyrannosaurids of different lineages and stuff. And you've got that's where you've got like, all the incredibly elaborate frilled lamiosaurs and all these centrosaurians and chasmosaurians. And then some of those are still around in the early Maastrichtian, but by the time you get to the late Maastrichtian, they're all gone. And you've only got basically among horned dinosaurs excluding small things like Leptoceratops, you've only got Taurosaurus and Triceratops. And you've got, um, among the hadrosaurs, you've only got flat-headed Edmontosaurus. And then among big theropods, you've only got Tyrannosaurus rex. And that's basically it. Mm. And all of those animals are kind of boring, bland members of their lineages compared to the, all the earlier ones, like what I was saying about the earlier elaborate Lamiosaurians and stuff. But then... Yeah, I had to draw an Edmontosaurus recently, and of course, that's why you, you saw that picture where you were commenting on the GSP shoulder folds. Yeah. <laughs> so Ed- Edmontosaurus, the classic duckbill dinosaur, we know it's got picket fence style crest along at least part of its back and tail. Maybe not its neck region, apparently, but but it also seems to have a soft tissue crest as well. When you stick all this stuff in, that's not, an, that's not a bland animal. That's like actually crazy elaborate. It's just less elaborate osteologically yeah. than Parasaurolophus and Corythiosaurus and whatnot. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, when we get the soft tissue of these animals, often they're really pretty odd, aren't they? Yeah, quite elaborate. All dinosaurs seem to be. It's really strange, except That's... for all those little psittacosaurs. Hmm. So, well, yeah, there's a famous no. one with the, um, you know, the quills. But there are there are, I think, hundreds of psittacosaurs out there with skin impressions and no quills, no nothing, just sort of little yeah. scales. Yeah, really little now, scales. Of course, having just having just finished the dinosaur book, I have of course written about the whole filament and feather and scale distribution in dinosaurs and i was reminded of the fact that there is somewhere in china a small stagosaurus like total length about 30 centimeters covered in quills stegosaur stegosaurus stegosaurus right did i say did i say stegosaur i heard stegosaurus well, we'll just see. Anyway, <laughs> there's a Cetacosaurus covered in quills, like covered mm-hmm. in quills, not just like a line along the back. Is there? I've never heard of well, this. Well, now, I reviewed the paper on this, and there were a load of crazy problems with it. 
which meant that it like you know needed extensive revision or something and it was later published in a paper by Theogot and Lingham Soliar. Now, Lingham Soliar has published these papers all about showing how... Uh, they're kind of... Mm, they're papers saying that the quills and other structures in dinosaurs are products of decomposition or something. It's not really clear what his position is, but I think he's saying, you know, everything is to do with the skin sloughing and falling apart and stuff. And that cetacosaur is in one of these papers, and it said that all the quills are like decomposed collagen things but so i went and checked that paper and the photos in that paper are not my recollection is i need to check this again but my recollection is the photos are not good enough for you to say anything you know either way about about it Mm -hmm. but it also flatly contradicted the paper i definitely remember seeing earlier before which uh definitely i guarantee said that these are integumentary quills and this was a quilly small Stachosaurus. Oh, it's a shame you got hold of it then, isn't it? <clears throat> um, I remember who the authors were of the original paper. I'll, I'll, one of them I've worked with. I'll, I'll go and uh, I'll go and ask because um, I'm curious now. I'd, I'd totally forgotten this paper. We're talking. We're going back to like 2001 or something when it, when I remember it being submitted. So, so there you go, Nicholas. Stachosaurus or something, something. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Nanotyrannus is a small T-Rex, according to John. Darren and me, although I do not pretend to know what I'm talking about. Okay, so Grant Harding, dear Tapipod Zoology, do you see what he did there? Uh, I don't get it. Oh, that's a shame. The asteroid impact hypothesis for the MC, very nice, MC extinction. <laughs> yeah. Extinction Having time. Cheap. Extinction time. Stop. <laughs> Okay, come on. Having having achieved near universal acceptance, has anyone ever come up with a satisfactory answer to Rob, to Bob Backer's frog problem? This is the idea that frogs, creatures like frogs, which should be the most sensitive to sudden chilling and acid rain, appear to have sailed through the boundary completely unscathed. Right, yeah. Backer's frog problem, which he's mentioned several times in TV interviews and books and articles and such. Um, where do we start with this one? Well, um, so, so, so Robert Backer says, uh, Robert Backer is a proponent of the idea that a hyper disease, some sort of like super evil killer Ebola style disease thing, killed everything from ammonites to plankton <laughs> to various lizard lineages to some tree groups uh, and dinosaurs as well. Uh, I do not think it's a tremendously good idea. <laughs> a disease that can kill a disease that can kill members of many, many diverse lineages. Now, echoing sentiments made earlier, th- echoing stuff said earlier about the Pleistocene extinction, the end Cretaceous event is, I wouldn't say universally, but it's like the majority opinion today, so far as I can tell, is that it's complicated and that it's an interplay of three different things i like to call it the integrated scenario there's an asteroid impact that happens yucatan peninsula six six million years ago chicxulub crater blah 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 you've all heard this before but there's also massive um magmatic volcanism causing the deccan traps and that's a thing you know 
that's like tens of thousands of years long event, which is having major impact on the amount of like CO2 and other gases outgassed, having a major impact on uh, climate and uh, you know local environments in Asia. That's that's got that's got a big thing. There's there's good evidence from plankton of like massive die-offs in plankton groups in the Indian Ocean, coinciding with the eruption of the Deccan traps, and you've got this um, this like uh, very interesting climate pattern happening in the late Maastrichtian. I think, if I can remember correctly, it's like gradual, substantial warming, and then like rapid cooling, and then right at the end, really rapid warming. And this happens over the space of like one and a half million years, which is the sort of change that it create we think based on what we see in the modern world we think that changes this this kind are problematic in terms of like because animals you know animals have got like a timetable to their lives they need to like go to a certain area because they're relying on plant material they need to you know breed at a certain time to rely on this resource you know they need to move to this certain area to avoid that kind of bad weather that sort of thing and if you've got these fluctuations happening over the space of well you know tens of thousands of years hundreds of thousands of years that's going to have some impact on the viability of animal and plant populations. So you've got impact, astral, um, volcanic stuff happening, and then you've also got like a long-term general uh, climatic... Why am I talking about this? I don't what? know. Frogs. Frogs. Right, yeah. Why did... Why Frogs. Were, so, yeah, okay, so, given all this... Yes. But I have problems with all this, but given all that... But then you've also got this third thing, which is you've got this gradual change as well. You've got this, like, one of the most profound marine regressions happening in the late Maastrichtian where like the the you know seas drain off parts of the land blah 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 right the frog thing i don't think that um basically it's an overstated problem he's claiming that frogs are some sort of like achilles heel some sort of weakness in disaster style scenarios but they're really not because he's assuming that frogs are like super sensitive to environmental uh, changes, which when you point to the evidence for frogs dying off in the modern world, that's due to things like the spread of fungi and stuff. It's not due to things like, um, you know, when there's a volcanic eruption, we, we don't have much data from the modern world as goes like uh, asteroid impacts on, on living animals, obviously. But um, think about like volcanic eruptions and stuff. They don't affect frogs more than they do other kinds of animals. Frogs are actually pretty tough and quite hard to kill off. And we know that numerous lineages of frogs did survive. Um, Backer points to a single species, which he said is, is important because it's present in the latest Cretaceous faunas. It's called Scotiofernae pustulosa. Scotiaferni pustulosa. It's because it's present in late Cretaceous North American sediments and it's also present in Paleocene ones as well. So he's saying, look, how can it be that this one frog species survived in North America across the boundary? Um, th- there's problems with that frog because the Paleocene fossils are pretty crappy. They're little bits of scraps of bone. It's not sure they're the same thing as the Cretaceous one. But that's beside the point because... It doesn't make any difference. doesn't make any difference. We know for a fact there must have been many frog species that did survive because there are like, you know, 35 frog lineages that did persist across the boundary. So if this can be summed up... I don't know that it can, but if it can be concisely summed up, I would say that there isn't a frog problem. I'd say that frogs, you don't have to, I'm not sure why you should expect frogs to have gone extinct just because of this uh, event which affected lots of other 
groups of organisms, but there's other things it didn't affect. The things it didn't affect, the things that survived among terrestrial animals, seem to be animals that um, are small and can hide, or they are dependent on um, resources that aren't top-tier resources. Hmm. So they're not out there on the plains requiring fresh vegetation or large animal prey. Well, frogs are predominantly insectivores. They're living in it and they eat worms and things like that. They're part of a food chain involving detritus and sludge and crap. And uh, a lot of frogs, not all of them, but a lot of them are classic, are selected mass breeders. You know, you only need to have a small number surviving for them to potentially... uh, yeah. Yeah, get through. So I think it's an overstated problem. Yeah. Agreed. And so what is Backer's position on the on the um asteroid impact? Does I, he think that it happened but didn't cause the extinction? Or does he think it didn't happen at all? Which seems like an extraordinary position to me. I mean both of them are wrong, but I don't know. But one of them's I, crazy. Let's check a recent book of his. Um, well, I only remember from the Dinosaur Heresies. In yeah. that, isn't isn't he implying that it didn't happen? And that yeah, but that was in 1986 or whenever it was written. I can't see my copy here. Um, when holding the position that maybe the meteorite impact didn't happen was possibly not so crazy. Well, in, okay, the big golden book of dinosaurs, let's not talk about that book for various reasons, but he says here, the most popular theory says that a meteorite smashed into the earth, sending up a dust cloud that cooled the land and polluted the water with acid rain. But this theory has holes too. Warmth-loving crocs, gators, and turtles didn't die out, plus frogs and salamanders survived, even though acid rain kills most amphibians. An old theory says that dinosaurs travelled from one continent to another, spreading diseases. I like this idea. Big land animals travel faster than little ones and faster than river reptiles like crocs and gators. So big dinosaurs could spread diseases faster and further than little lizards on land and big reptiles in rivers and lakes. Maybe we need to combine several theories. So that's the key. He's he's in that last line. Maybe we need to combine things. He's See, I and this is where I have problems with the combined hypothesis, as you put it as well. So... Yes, yes, yes. All those things might have meant dinosaurs were not at their absolute peak of mm-hmm. evolutionary fitness, right? That they were having problems. But that could have been true for lots of periods. You go zoom in at some other period. It was. Cretaceous. So yeah. what is interesting and what we could say caused it was the one that you... Okay, so you, I think you could remove volcanism and still get them going extinct. You could remove the decline in species diversity, you'd still get them going extinct. That's what I think. I think the meteorite impact still would have caused the extinction of all those big dinosaurs without those other factors. Well, this is the thing. This is the thing that it's, it's difficult to answer because that, that isn't what happened because we did have these things going on at the same time. I know, but science and is about us, and us um, answering principles. But so, that's, but, so but which that's, bit could you remove? If we want to know the cause, wait what's a minute, the interesting but, thing that happened? Yeah, all these other things, okay, they might be kind of interesting in a how do we think about ecology sort of way, but what caused the extinction of dinosaurs? No. Well, but that's an opinion, what you've just put forward there. And... Why is that not more valid than the 
opposite opinion, which is that, well, no, 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 no. I say that the, the asteroid impact wouldn't have killed because them. Because it's a hell of a lot simpler. It's Why? The sim- because it's they, the simplest because, explanation. Because the end Triassic asteroid impact, of which there were, you know, probably at least one, was of similar magnitude, and that didn't kill dinosaurs. I didn't think it was anywhere near as big. Oh, I thought it was. <laughs> I didn't think so. Oh, we should and know these things before we um. I my recollection is that there are there's an end Triassic thing. I, I know it's been mentioned for the Jurassic, but I'm not I'm not sure off the top of my head. I think there are there are events, impact events of similar magnitude to the end Cretaceous one. And the point is, they didn't kill dinosaurs. Why didn't they kill dinosaurs? I if, didn't think they were of similar magnitude. Oh, I thought they were. I, I thought they were. I think I think that's part of the point here. Um, maybe we should come back to that. I yeah. want to check that now. But in the stuff in the thing that I just wrote, that that was part of the argument. It was like, well, the asteroid impact. If if volcanism and long term climatic and habitat deterioration hadn't happened, if it was just the asteroid impact, then maybe the dinosaurs, let's say the dinosaurs in the southern hemisphere or in like eastern Asia or whatever, maybe they would have survived, but they didn't survive because they were having their own problems associated with volcanism and stuff. And the asteroid impact was like the last straw. The thing that the thing that killed off already um depauperate and, you know, stressed animals. Um and yeah, I, I, underst- I understand the theory. I just, yeah. I'm not, it seems like backtracking from a good theory to me. You've got a nice, simple explanation and you're going, you're saying, well, all this complicated stuff, which isn't necessary. But it's never explained everything, the asteroid impact, because you do have lineages of, you have lots of things that are definitely dying out before the impact. But you always definitely. have things dying out. Ichthyosaurs, for example. I mean, it's not unusual. It's the, I guess this is probably answered in the papers, and I should read the papers, but the background rate of extinction. And I think this is really difficult to get from the fossil record as well. Yeah, the ichthyosaur thing is a red herring, by the way, because it turns out they were doing extremely well. They were very diverse right up until the end of the Cenomanian, when they, adi- then they die out in a mass extinction. There's a thing called the end Cenomanian event. I don't know what the cause of that is, but... Um, they weren't petering out slowly. But there's other things. There's like whole guilds of plankton that all die out at the same time. There's like all the pelagic plankton. And the plankton that you've got left before you get to the asteroid impact are like the, the disaster taxa, the ones that are, that are surviving in like low diversity faunas, low diversity assemblages with them um, uh, suited for like low oxygen conditions and stuff like that. So, and that's before the impact. So, yeah, yeah, no, I don't. I, yeah, I, I get that this stuff could have been happening, but I guess mm-hmm. what I my my main argument is that the impact we 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 have a relatively good notion of the magnitude of the end of the Cretaceous impact and some of yeah. its effects, and mm-hmm. they seem adequate to explain the extinction of dinosaurs to me, large dinosaurs, easily adequate. Nah. Well, but but it's, it's not hard. just dinosaurs. It's not just dinosaurs, is it? Yeah, it's all big things. Well, there's all, there's all the plankton and the ammonoids and all this other stuff, and there's plant lineages that go extinct. And yes, some of those things, no doubt, that can be linked to... Okay, but with no impact, uh, dinosaurs impacts. would still be here. Big dinosaurs would still yeah. be here. Yeah, no I impact, think they, big dinosaurs I think they probably would. would. I think they probably would. But I, I don't think, I don't agree that you can see this as like 
as a, as a one event scenario. You have to take these other things into Nothing account. Nothing is a one event scenario. That's my point. There's no such thing as a one event scenario because everything is interconnected by th- millions and millions of causal events. Of course it is. I guess what I'm saying is that the most interesting thing and the most spectacular thing and the simplest thing that you can say is that the impact caused the extinction because without it, the extinction doesn't happen. Without one of these other things, the extinctions definitely still could have happened. Well, I think this might be an issue of semantics because, yes, well, okay. Yeah, but semantics is what everyone's always arguing about. That's not like it. That's not an end of an argument. <laughs> no, that's not what we mean by things is what we always argue about. Saying an argument is about semantics is saying yeah. we're arguing about something. Yes, we are arguing about something. We're arguing about what we mean when we say something caused something. Yep. Yeah. Um, but and yeah, no, I, I, I do understand all that, but I think that in some ways it's when we're talking to people that maybe know considerably less about all of this stuff, saying that the extinction was really complicated and umming and erring on the asteroid impact seems like you're not really conveying very much information there. It's not umming and erring on it. That's saying it happened and it was the last thing, but it only killed dinosaurs because yeah, they were saying- already... Yeah, they were already saying, in trouble, but but you're the, saying it's the last straw. But it was more like the last, you know, ten ton weight <laughs> <laughs> that came down and squashed them flat. It wasn't a minor thing, as I say. You know, it was it was a massive. I um, cause interviewed. Of extinction. Now, now, where's the magazine article? I I interviewed one of the main asteroid impact investigator type people um, early this year, and he said to me. You know, there's been this debate about about um, there, there was there's a bunch of researchers who Goethe Keller and colleagues they argued that the impact happened like thirty thousand three hundred thousand years before the extinction. Mm. So they were saying that the impact is not correlated with the extinction. And they were saying that, so therefore, it's Deccan trap volcanism mm. that's solely responsible for the extinction. This inspired other people. Paul Rene is the guy I spoke to. And he and his colleagues, they went and like thoroughly redated the Chicxulub sediments. And they showed that, in fact, Keller and colleagues had made a mistake, made a series of mistakes, actually, and that the impact event so far as we can tell in terms of geological records, simultaneous with the end Cretaceous extinction events. But Rene said to me that that if if even if the impact hadn't happened, the extinctions would have occurred. Long-term change would most likely have occurred anyway as a result of Deccan volcanism, but it would have been less severe and more protracted. We know that massive volcanism is associated with other extinctions, where there's no evidence for an impact. So my thinking is influenced by this association. So he's basically saying that the extinction, the extinction of dinosaurs and other end Cretaceous things would have happened even without the impact because of these other events. So, Well, that's interesting, but then I, my understanding is that all those other extinctions are hotly debated as well. Well, he works on end Cretaceous extinction events, and I don't even know who you are, yeah. so... We'll stop there. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting discussion.
Um, right. Let's get another cash for question up. So that was from Grant Harding. Thank you, Thank Grant. you, Grant. This is from Tristan Rapp. Oh, it's another... God damn it. It's another extinction question. Oh. How likely to find it that a few non-avian dinosaurs survived the KPG extinction... KPG. Uh, <laughs> extinction event <laughs> going on to become the component of the Paleogene or even Eocene ecosystems before finally going extinct. Okay, good, good question. So that these, there have been these various claims over the years that non-bird dinosaurs of several lineages and even one lineage of archaic birds that they might have survived across the KPG <laughs> event and uh, yeah, persisted into the Paleocene, the first part of the Paleogene, uh, or even into the uh, Tristan says even into the Eocene. I'm not, I'm not sure I've heard of that lately, but um, yeah. Uh, this is based. This was initially based on the fact that people were finding like pristine non-bird dinosaur teeth in like um, Paleogene sediments, and and they all turned out to be um, what's called reworked, which means they're actually from older beds. They've been washed out of rocks, sediments, whatever, and tumbling around in streams and rivers and things for decades, centuries, and have then become incorporated into younger rocks. And if we look at the uh, isotope geochemistry of those fossils, we can show that they are actually from the older rocks. They're from the pre-KPG events, KPG times. Then there have been like, alleged bones of hadrosaurs that have been claimed to be from Paleocene sediments. Um, and th- th- there's various of these claims. And part of the, you know, the argumentation goes that, well, look, they come from Paleocene sediments, so that's argument number one. And secondly, they're pristine. They haven't been reworked from older sediments. That's argument number two. Uh, and they represent surviving taxa, surviving individuals. That's argument number three. Well, argument number one, they're from Paleocene sediments. If you imagine that you're in a part of the world where you've got uh, latest Cretaceous sediments and Paleocene sediments, you often don't have a distinct KPG boundary. And are you absolutely sure, absolutely 100% sure, that you're dealing with Paleocene sediments and not latest Cretaceous ones? That's the first thing you've got be sure. And when this has been checked out, Denver Fowler and a bunch of other people, they looked into this in some North American cases, they showed that in fact these alleged Paleocene rock beds weren't Paleocene at all, they were actually Cretaceous units that had been wrongly dated. The second thing, the argument that all the bones are pristine so that proves they haven't been reworked, well that kind of is linked to what I said because it depends on are the bones definitely from Paleocene rocks? Are they in situ? Um, There's also an expectation that bones should be um, a bit tatty if they've been reworked, but well, you can be reworked over the space of like I just said, teeth can tumble around for centuries or whatever. Whatever, but you know, reworking can also be a relatively quick thing. Something can be washed out of a rock on Tuesday, and on Friday it's in some younger sediments. Yeah. So, <laughs> that, have I explained that at all? Well, does that make sense? Yeah, and um, I think you know, um, people are picturing sort of really things getting worked out of really hard rock, you know. So they're sitting there weathering. But, you know, lots of fossils, especially relatively new ones, are in soft rock, aren't they? And you can get worked out of a soft material like that in in a couple of days. Exactly. Exactly. That's that's, that's what I have in mind. So, um, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, um, and there was a third thing I said, which I can't remember now. But um, uh, how likely does it seem, how likely do you find the the idea that a few non-avian dinosaurs survived the event well yeah so ignoring know. the evidence for it which seems pretty weak well, yeah what how likely is it yeah 
Well, um, how do geological boundaries match with actual real time in terms of lifetimes of individuals? Is the K- the KPG event? It's difficult to understand how instantaneous any of these geological events are because, okay, we mark it by a thin band that, you know, distinguishes Cretaceous rocks and Paleocene ones. But in terms of like that band, in terms of how that actually corresponds to actual time, you're talking about, uh, let's be as conservative as possible, we're talking about months to years. So there's still going to be time when, I I, I don't know, where do you... do you see what I'm trying to say? How do you draw the line between the Cretaceous? Did the Cretaceous end on Tuesday? <laughs> <laughs> and then on Wednesday, it was the Paleocene. Now, my ignorance is going to be showing here, but is the boundary of the end of the Cretaceous actually marked by the yeah, change thing, in rocks yeah. because of the asteroid impact? Yeah, there's a, there's a layer called the boundary clay, Yeah, I think. I think that's right. I mean, I'm no... Geologizer, either. See, I thought it uh, wasn't a coincidence that the asteroid impact happened right at the end of the Cretaceous. It's it's there because that's what the change that's what the change everyone was noticing. That sounds about right to me. I reckon that's about right. So therefore, we can say that. Well, maybe the end. Of, maybe the Cretaceous ended the moment that that asteroid hit the hit the planet. Right, and if that's the case, well, then it's got to be. I would, I would say, it's got to be the case that there must have been individuals of many species that literally did survive into the the first few months, years of Although, the Paleocene. Are those rocks part of what we call the Cretaceous, and therefore, actually, the end of the Cretaceous when all that settled? <laughs> <laughs> In which case. Mm. Yeah, maybe they were all <laughs> dead by the time it settled. Although, no, probably not, because, you know, a large... Yeah, Lip no, flop. they wouldn't be. They yeah. Wouldn't be. Because a large, you know, a large plant-eating dinosaur, some sort of sauropod or a hadrosaur, is probably going to go a while before it dies of starvation or cold, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that's kind of my thinking. Okay, um, so the question is, did anything actually breed, you know, generations? So we, did did anyone have a successful... Any of these animals have a successful breeding event after this event, after the asteroid impact, which will take us the end of the Cretaceous. And I, there, I'm kind of inclined to think not, because I think part of the the reason that the extinction happened is because. So like, now you're going to you're arguing on my side because uh, if you think that no, I was going to flip flop on that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> See. Okay. Yes. <laughs> Some little generalist... But then they were wiped out by all these other things that were going to cause the extinction anyway. Yeah. Exactly. Whereas I'm going to say no, because otherwise they would have got another foothold and survived. They would have rediversified. So they, yeah. Because these other things were not sufficient to cause the extinction. But you could be... There's there's animals that, that are like... Uh, have you heard of dead clades walking and zombie taxa? There's like animals that can persist for a time, but they're doomed. You know, and today we've got whole ecosystems that are superficially healthy, but when you actually check out how they're working, they're doomed. They're going to die and they're not going to perpetuate. Because, like, for example, you can have whole stands of trees that look healthy, but these trees are going to die one day. Mm-hmm. Where are the baby trees? And it turns out that not one 
there are tree species where there is not one viable seedling. So, okay, we might save those trees because we can store their seeds or their DNA or whatever. But if we weren't doing that, when the adults die, the um, the way the ecosystem is working means that they aren't, the adults aren't ever going to get to breed. Um, ecosystem uh, trophic cascade um, stuff. I'll just throw out some more words there and hope yeah. some of them stick. Yeah. <laughs> good bamboozle in there. Oh. Yeah, I I, I, under, think, I, think I do understand like that. that, but I still think that for the sake of a relatively simple answer, I think if any of them got a foothold afterwards, in, in that they got to a successful breeding event, then I think there was a good chance that they would re-diversify. Lots of dinosaurs yeah. being our strategists and so on. Yeah, but uh, but I, I I do agree with that. I do like that idea, but I, I also think it's plausible that maybe some of these animals could hang on for a little while, but they're not in an ecosystem that allows them to uh, yeah to get a foothold again. They're 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 doomed, even if they are able to like get out you know a generation or two. Um, what is there's a I was I've had a discussion about this more recently to do like ecology of extant things. What was it? I think it was fish. Because there's whole, there's whole ecosystems now where there, there are big adult fish, but the, the whole shape of the ecosystem has changed, mm. meaning, meaning that like their fry can't survive. So again, they are you know, dead, dead clades walking. They, they can never um, you know, regain their numbers or... Uh, but then, yeah. but then that's different because you know planktonic fry are not really analogous to anything dinosaurs do. But um, no, and uh, I think that's sort of where that falls down a little bit. I mean, for most dinosaurs, it's hard to imagine a situation where they could breed, but nothing could survive. I but, just, but but doesn't that depend on what kind of dinosaurs we're talking about? If we're talking about does, little, yeah. man, if we're talking about little manoraptorans, so baby chewodontids, if we've just spoken about frogs and things surviving to the extinction event, mm. then little baby chewodontids are going to be like, you know, it's the size of like, you know, baby chickens. They're going to be able to make a living from eating bugs and bits of dead plants and yeah. whatever, droppings from their parents, who knows what. But, so maybe they're going to be okay, which ironically, they're the dinosaurs you most expect to make it through the extinction event. Yeah. But things like hadrosaurs, which, now that's a problem as well, because we now know that hadrosaurs can eat wood. <laughs> but, but animals that are dependent on lush, fresh greenery, you know, they are not going to survive. So, uh, ooh, I don't know. Yeah. See, I think this is another thing that actually makes the asteroid impact stronger. The fact that we don't have things surviving and then limping to extinction. We have nothing, as far as we can make out. And if we ever find something that survives and then goes extinct, I think that does that would suggest that the meteorite impact was not the be-all and end-all of the extinction. Yeah. So I think that would, we, that would, yeah. So there we go, a little bit of falsification that you can have of the meteorite impact being the major, overwhelming cause of the extinction rather than these other things. <laughs> so, question from Christian Jewell, many-time cash for questioner. If you were to come up with the plot for the next Hollywood dinosaur movie, what would it be? Do you want to speak foist? Oh, I can. Yeah. I would keep it simple. Yeah. I would just have... <laughs> Dinosaurs eat people, run amok. No, no, no. Well, <laughs> a little bit. But no, I would 
I would just make a straight ahead time travel film. People get in a time machine, they get dumped in the late Cretaceous somewhere, and their time machine breaks, so they're stuck. Ah, oh, Bones of the Earth. It's a novel. Yeah. Essentially that. And you make you can make a great, you know, it's an adventure. They've got to go somewhere to get something to fix their time machine or something like this. <clears> come <throat> back, done, done, and done. You know, they get chased by a they get chased by a tyrannosaur. They see some hadrosaurs. Someone gets stepped on by a sauropod. It's all good. You don't need a complicated plot. <laughs> there's a, there's a novel called called uh, yeah Bones of the Earth. I've forgotten the name of the author, and that's exactly what happens. A bunch of people. There's. Time travel is a thing in this book, and people routinely go back in time to study, uh, you know, Mesozoic ecosystems, well, the study ecosystems throughout the history of life. And creationists in this book are terrorists. And, uh, oh, wow, they're uh, way overcomplicated this already. <laughs> well, it gets better, it gets better. A terrorist creationist who's gone back to the Cretaceous, he, like, throws a bomb into the time cone, whatever it's called, and that, like, strands a bunch of people. In. Oh, by the way, Tom Holtz is a main is a character in this, uh, in this novel, seriously. And, um, uh, but then it turns out that uh, intelligent birds from the future come back and uh, <laughs> it sort of gets, it piles on, it piles on the complexity. I think, um, actually, um, you know... I- I, I said it's way too complicated. Of course, complicated, intricate things can work in in novels, keep, keep which talking. don't which don't work in films very well. Right? Yes. Um, so there's nothing wrong with a complicated, intricate plot in a novel. Often it can be quite interesting, but in films you just don't have time. You don't even know who's pe- the names of the people. Yeah. To or if pile on a really yeah. Two that look slightly alike. Yeah, you like, just think the they're, same, they're the same person. The same the person. Thing. Oh, that was two different people? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, uh, <laughs> so I really think that if I, uh, if it's a big Hollywood blockbuster, go with a simple adventure story of just getting dumped in the Cretaceous, have to, you know, jump across a ravine using a, using a vine, that sort of thing. <laughs> so there you go. John <laughs> Throw it back. There's no time. <laughs> <laughs> Well, having thought about uh, my ideas for a movie, I'm afraid mine are just mine are just as bad and cliched as yours, but in the opposite direction. Because my ideas have always been like the um, things like um, Wayne Barlow's Expedition, which is where I don't know if you know Barlow's Expedition, but it's all about people go to an. In, in, in Expedition, it's about they go to a planet called Darwin 4, and it's all about scientists documenting an incredible array of new organisms and the relationships between them. And, uh, you know, my idea is always for sort of that kind of thing where you've got, like, scientists of many different genre, uh, genres, genre scientists, many different branches of science um, discovering, like, holy crap really amazing stuff that we uh, hadn't thought about before but there's there's got to be something tying it together there's got to be some big thing which uh wouldn't be a uh, cyborg from the future or a uh, retarded giant monster creature like indominus rex or whatever I, but i don't know what it is i haven't got anything. what do you mean a big thing tying it together well there's got to be some like <sighs> you you cuz there's got to be some like key sort of key revelation that's like some new thing that's discovered that's that um 
means that make, make, makes the storyline. There's got to be like some point of action that comes to a climax. So, but I can't think what that could be. <laughs> so, well, I don't, I don't know if that's true. I mean, well, maybe that doesn't then. Okay, I just want a pe- I just want a film about people taking samples. It's got to have no. It's got to have. It's got to have a drama. Yeah, it's got to have a. Yeah, see what you're saying. Yeah, it's got to have drama in it somehow. There's got to be some sort of point. Yeah, some goal that's got to be achieved. Well, there's got to be some. So it's okay and to discover danger. stuff. Yeah, so that, that you're going to have people discovering all kinds of amazing stuff that we hadn't thought about. Like, it turns out that none of the animals look like what we thought they did. <laughs> I can't identify anything. That would be a cool story. Which, of course, is that's, that's mainstream for us, but it isn't for, like, an audience. You've got to have people doing cool science, the sort of science that you would actually do if you had real-life animals. Like, oh, I brought along my handy force plate and uh, I'll do some 3D uh, photogrammetry and, uh, you know, uh, oh, take DNA great, samples. This is a great film, Darren. It's a great Film. Yeah, so DNA samples. Oh, it turns out these these animals, which we thought were sister taxa, no way, they're from completely different branches of the tree of life. That one's not even a. Uh, it's not even an ornithopod. It's it's actually a theropod. It just looks like an ornithopod. You know, <laughs> all those kinds of things. Um, but but yeah, in terms of, I can think of lots of things like that. But in terms of thinking of like a big gee whiz, um, yeah, I was having. Uh, I've I do have another plot which I can talk about Slightly let me just different. say come yeah. to that come to that but let me just say in bones of the earth the the big gee whiz thing that they, they discover is that the dinosaurs use infrasound to communicate which is not a big deal they weren't surprised to discover that but what they did discover is that the dinosaurs actually can detect i don't say here but they can detect the movement of continental plates and so they time their con their um their migration based on plate movement and they also have a sort of symbiosis whereby a predator comes along and is able to communicate with herbivores and so the herbivores can like uh, deject the ones from their herd that they want to die they sacrifice members of their own uh, and that's all done using infrasound and the main character gets a technical paper out of it which is published in science or something <laughs> <laughs> This is a very intricate book. And there's a I don't really think dumb it's a bit. Good, I don't think there's it's a, a good template for a film. There's so. a dumb bit in the in the in the in the book where he, um, the main character. I always think of him as being like Alan Grant in Jurassic Park. I can't remember his name, but um, he goes to a meeting and people are asking him to sign reprints of a paper that he hasn't published yet. <laughs> well, if you saw something that you hadn't written yet, and people were showing it to you from the future, that's a really bad idea because. Then you would go the rest of your days thinking, I don't need to write that thing because I know it happens anyway. <laughs> and then you'd never do it. Yeah. Which means it, Well, just give me that. Right. <laughs> Hand it in. Yeah. That's kind of a paradox. Maybe that is what happened. Maybe that is what happened. Yeah. A paradox. Anyway, okay. yeah, sorry, so your, your other plot idea. Um, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. <laughs> Again, I don't really care how you get to the dinosaur time, time travel. Is there a beach? No. So this is an idea about tyrannosaur behaviour. I was discussing this with Dave Hone, so it's sort of both of our ideas. (laughs) (laughs) So the notion that Tyrannosaurus Rex, in particular, because Tyrannosaurus Rex is going to be the main driving force of this film. Oh, I'm bored already. Yep. (laughs) It's not a sprinter, but it was an excellent long-distance sort of stalker, right? And so you go back to the Cretaceous. Someone spots 
like, I don't know, binoculars or something. Someone sees that there's a Tyrannosaurus on the horizon and it spotted them and it started walking towards them at some sort of rate. And you just keep... and But this is... It's done in real time over two and a half hours or something. And you've just got to keep ahead of this T-Rex. And you can't stop and you've got to keep going. You've got to keep getting away from the T-Rex. But the T-Rex has spotted you and it's just coming to get you. And it's just a real time until the end of the film, the T-Rex gets there and either kills everyone or something. I don't know. doesn't really matter. The point is that they spend the whole time just scrambling away from this T-Rex at whatever rate they can keep up, but it's not quite as not quite as fast as the T-Rex. Hmm. So you like that idea, don't you? You think, oh, actually, that's not too bad. It's not too bad. I'm just trying to think of a, a, a similar thing that's been done along the, the very, very slow car chase. But it's not very slow. I mean, estimated running speed is 18 miles per hour, I think. Um, yeah... So, but maybe the T Rex doesn't keep this up for that long. You know, it sort of <laughs> stops know. and has a nap for. Yeah, a couple well, of days. no, maybe it's maybe it's maybe it's ten miles now. You know, that it keeps going <laughs> for ten miles, and you know, over terrain and stuff. Yeah, and you, yeah, mm. I think I think that would be a that would be like a really tense film. Well, everybody loves T Rex, so um, yeah. Yeah, um, interesting. And it's a new yeah. way for T-Rex to be scary. It's more I like know what it an unstoppable of. force of nature rather than sort of just a crazy, crazed monster. Ryan Reynolds, In a Box, Underground. Have you seen that film? No, sounds yeah. terrible. It's pretty good. can't Is remember it? what it's called, though. In a Box, Underground. Yeah, he's like buried in a coffin. Right. And he's got a, he's got, he's got a cell phone. Let's <laughs> see. It sounds, it sounds like, well, how could I watch it? Because a film is, I don't know, an hour and 20 minutes. I mean, how could yeah. I possibly watch that? But I actually watched it and didn't get bored. thought it was quite good. Okay. Up, and, and literally all it is, I think there's a couple of times when it shows above ground, but all it is is him in a, in a coffin. And um, he's, yeah, something to do with, he's like a lorry driver in Iraq or something, and he gets kidnapped and buried. And my, I don't know why. But yeah, that's totally it similar. Reminds me. Yeah, really similar. <laughs> Sorry. Um, Dave Hone has got I a was new thinking book. it'd be a bit Done. more right. like High Sorry. Noon. Have you seen High Noon? I haven't seen High Noon. Okay. And it's well, a Western. It's not, yeah, it is. It's not much of a spoiler to say that the bandits are arriving on the train at High Noon. And he's. Uh, who's the. Is it Jimmy Cooper? Anyway, yeah, I think it is. Anyway, he's um trying to get together deputies to meet the bandits he's the sheriff and everyone's basically well no way i'm not meeting the bandits you're on your own and so it takes takes place a real time um, oh yeah while he's trying to gather together the townspeople to fight the bandits but everyone's too chicken hmm. so it's sort of like that you know something's gonna happen and we just sort I, of I, I counting down until it does Films that are in real time are are quite a good idea when it's done right. There's there's some famous examples. Main plot hole I see with this T Rex thing is that surely it would come across something more tasty than a bunch of scrawny <laughs> humans in exactly. in the space of these several miles. But maybe yes. what you do is that you have it taking place after the after the impact. Think of it. <laughs> yeah, so it's really hungry. Yeah, and it's eaten everything. And it's a it's a particularly Skinny, starving T-Rex, yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> huh. Yes. Um, and, that, and that's why Hollywood 
<laughs> you should give your money to us. We're full of ideas. There's so many ideas. I mean, come on, those are, those are guaranteed uh, opening weekend $2 billion smashes right there. Well, um, to be frank, I don't think it mattered what the plot was of Jurassic World. It was going <laughs> to do that. And I think they went for a comp- plot that was way too complicated. I didn't understand half the plot while I was watching it. Sort of pieced it together afterwards. Yeah. But it, was, it did not need that intricate plot. Well, maybe they did that because they wanted a little... Well, this is sounding very familiar, but they wanted a little bit of everything. Yeah, a yeah, little yeah, bit yeah. of... Yeah, a little yeah. bit of everything, yeah. I think, I think we did that. Yeah. Right. Uh, so what, Dave Hone has done a new book on tyrannosaurs. I believe it's called The Bulgy of Tyrannosaurs or The Bulgy of Tyrant Dinosaurs or something. I don't know when it's out. but um, <clears throat> And I also wanted like, new books. I mentioned. I started the show talking about new books. I want to end the show with talking about new books. Look at this. Demand les animaux de fear by uh, Marc Boulay and Sebastian Steer. So it's a book about the Dixonian era or epoch. It's in the future. <laughs> and... Uh, it's, it's, let me find you. I mean, so it's. A, I haven't read all of it yet. It's in French. They will have an English translation. So it's a future world where um, most of the animals, most of the the interesting animals, the tetrapods, are flightless birds and bats. So you got like kind of CG, mm-hmm. X-ray pictures, and also very nice um, CG animals. Now, I'm not a fan of CG mm. reconstructions, but these are really good. So, um, Mark Boulay is very good at this. Look at this. Look, this is a night vision kind of t- yeah. tyrant parrot and some other bird thing. But, uh, Looks yeah. like a oviraptor. It does. It's called Neo-Oviraptor, I believe, that creature. There's like giant hummingbirds. There's giant quadrupedal hummingbirds in the future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Naturally. Yeah, so I think there's like some island continent populated by hummingbirds. Here we go. Yeah, look, there you go. A quadrupedal hummingbird creature. Demand les animaux du futur. It will be published in English at some point. Um... Yeah, that's new. I need, I, and I will be reviewing it at Tetsu in time. So, uh. right, end of show. Oh, can you hear that? No, that's interesting. It's really loud here. It's a helicopter. Oh, just about with imagination. Yeah, These microphones sure. do a good job of cutting out the background. Well, there's an annoying large flesh fly buzzing around here. Which, uh, no, I can't hear that. Flies in the house just drive me mad. Anyway, fascinating listening. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> so we have a confirmed date, Saturday the 14th of November for TetsuCon 2015. We have several speakers confirmed already. Please... Come along, come and spend the day with us in London mm. and uh, get friends and colleagues to come along as well. The more people come, the more likely this thing is going to work and we're going to have, we're going to get bigger and better. It's only the second one and we're doing all right, but you know, we want to get bigger and better. Right. If you're interested in the sort of stuff we talk about, then why aren't you buying our books, eh? <laughs> <laughs> 
There's one called, oh, I can't reach it. It's called All Yesterdays. And it's about science and speculation, paleontol- and art, and uh, paleontological reconstructions by John and myself and our good friend Memo Kozman. And we also produced a book called The Cryptozoologicon, Volume 1. John, myself, and Memo Kozman. We've done one of these books, and a second one is. It's totally <laughs> imminent. Totally imminent. Um, please support me at Patreon. If you want to see how it's going with the textbook I'm working on, then click on the Google bar. (laughs) 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 Patreon.com forward slash Tetzoo. And there's also a couple of uh, shops where we sell merchandise. I've got a bunch of stuff at redbubble.com forward slash people forward slash Tetzoo. There's nerdy t-shirts involving dinosaurs, primates, cryptozoology and stuff. And we also have a dedicated Tetrapod zoology podcast shop which is at uh, redbubble.com forward slash people forward slash tetrapod cats shop Uh, I just realised now there's a piece of merchandise here featuring a tape here yeah this year possibly the zoological discovery of the century a new species of tape here was found (laughs) oh dear Um, yeah (laughs) I I had a hilarious conversation on Facebook where I shared some pictures I'd recently taken of tapirs and someone, I'm not going to mention his name, he said, have you heard there's a new species of tapir? And I was like, <laughs> no way, tell me more. And he said, yeah, really, it's called Tapras camarnia, described by Mario Coswell locally. <laughs> I said, you kidding? How come I didn't hear this? And he said, no, really, and its status has been challenged as well. And I said, really, you're kidding? And he was like, yeah, it's been published, you know, these papers. And I was like, no way, how come I didn't hear of this? And he was like, yeah, it's the news, but I can't believe it, it's a new tapir. And then I finished the conversation by saying, by the way, I'm actually kidding. And then links yeah. to like the Tetsu article, the merchandise, yeah, the many like, tape. Ha ha, got you, you idiot. Yeah, gotcha. Ha ha. So he felt bad. <laughs> anyway, uh, <laughs> I tweet at, <clears throat> so rebel ships are coming into our sector. Good. Our first catch of the day <laughs> at Tetsu. And I currently blog at a little blog called Tetrapods already currently hosted at Scientific American. And, there's a Tetrapods Audio Facebook page. And if you're interested in TetzuCon news on Twitter, follow hashtag TetzuCon and also join the TetzuCon Facebook page. I don't think I've got anything else to mention. What about you? Yeah. Um, I'm at, on Twitter, I am the John Conway. My website is johnconway.co. On Patreon, I am <coughs> patreon.com slash John Conway. Yes, that is your name. That is my name. <laughs> I was trying to remember. No, I don't even want to say it. I don't want to confuse people. Right. And um, I think that's it. Uh, yeah. TetsuCon. Uh, we'll aim to have something up about TetsuCon 2015 at com slash convention. And hopefully you might even be able to buy tickets already. Yay. Yeah. And... Thank you to our cash for questioners. Thank you to our supporters and patrons. Thank you to our listeners. Thank you. Thank you all.